Hello, and welcome to the Charter Cities podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, the founder and executive director of the Charter Cities Institute. On the Charter Cities podcast, we illuminate the various aspects of building a charter city, from governance to urban planning, politics to finance. We hope listeners to the Charter Cities podcast will come away with a deep understanding of charter cities, as well as the steps necessary to build them. You can subscribe and learn more about charter cities at chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter, and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. Thank you for listening. For the first Charter Cities podcast, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. My colleague Tamara Winter will be interviewing me. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks for having me. So Paul Romer tried to do Charter Cities. He has a Nobel Prize in economics, of course, and he wasn't really able to get traction for Charter Cities. So why will this attempt be different? Paul Romer is obviously a genius, and I think there's a lot to learn from what he did, and we can take those lessons and be a little bit more successful. And so what I see as the key differences for our approach and his are, one, Paul Romer was advocating using an external foreign country to act as the guarantor. So, for example, Canada would come in and administer a charter city in Haiti or in Honduras. And that sort of has echoes of neocolonialism that makes it difficult to sort of get the political buy-in. Second, what we're doing is people are building new cities. And so rather than taking this starting from scratch approach, we're trying to go the path of least resistance to work with people who are already building new cities and then implement these reforms. So it's a little bit more of an incremental approach to build up momentum. And what we're seeing is that this is already paying dividends. And so, well, I think there's a lot of credit to Paul and him coming up with this idea originally. I think that our strategy has already proved into a solid traction. I'm quite optimistic about play out uh, going forward. So we have debates in the office pretty often about what kinds of charter cities or industries rather that charter cities should pursue. So between manufacturing and services in particular, is there a reason to prefer one over the other? So it depends on what the goal of the charter city is and what the resident target population is. So, for example, one of the projects we're working with in Zambia called Nkwashi, they are going services. They are building a university and they are trying to target jobs that have relatively high human capital, primarily tech jobs, because the remote work market is exploding. But I'm relatively skeptical of that ability to scale. So that can work if you have a city with 100,000 people. It might work with several cities of 100,000 people. But if you really look at where most of the poverty alleviation has happened in the last 30, 40, 50 years, it's occurred with basically industrialization, with really moving up the supply chain, starting with things like textile manufacturing, then going to bicycles, then cars, etc. And this allows for one much more massive employment. For example, San Francisco, it's less than 10% of the population of San Francisco works in tech, and that's a tech city. So if you just think about the total employment that these high productivity, high value add service sector jobs provide, they're good, but they don't provide this really wide scale employment that makes it difficult to scale to have this really big impact if we're talking about raising tens of millions of people out of poverty. So just a question about special economic zones. So we're often asked, how are charter cities different from special economic zones, aside from, of course, the name? And the literature on special economic zones is pretty mixed. And there are lots of failed special economic zones, of course. So why will charter cities be different? So we see charter cities as, to a certain extent, a subset of special economic zones. So special economic zones just say, okay, a country's national business laws don't apply, some percentage of them don't apply in this area. So it might be taxes, it might be things like business registry, it might be imports or exports. And what we say is, okay, rather than doing this piecemeal approach, why not start from scratch and really blow everything up and build a new institutional infrastructure? So create different labor, different taxes, different 
dispute resolution to devolve this power to the city level of authority. So rather than saying, okay, this is what labor law is, say, look, we can probably get labor law right, but this is really a city. So this is going to change over time. And you need to be able to respond quickly without going to permission from the national government because the conditions on the ground are going to change very rapidly. And third, the other difference is a charter city is a city. So right, it has residential, it has commercial, it has industrial, it has all of these different aspects that make it really a sufficiently large unit to spur economic growth on its own. And while you might have very successful industrial parks, they typically aren't sufficient to spur growth on their own because there's all of these backward linkages that might not be in the park because you also need the residential aspect. And so the charter city, because it's a city, really gets at the core of all of these important questions for development that can spur this change. And so you also asked about the fact that many special economic zones have not been successful. And so we're trying to correct for some of those errors. So what we see oftentimes is special economic zones can be politically motivated. So political decisions go into figuring out where the location is, what businesses might be attracted. For example, we visited one in Zambia. And in Zambia, what happened was they built this special economic zone. It had great roads, but there were very few businesses there in part because there wasn't reliable electricity. So what we're doing to correct for that is partnering with new city developments that are privately led. Because we believe that the incentive mechanism, the investors don't want to lose their money, makes for better site selection. It makes for a better targeting of initial industries. It makes for better selection of the legal changes that are necessary to jumpstart economic growth. And if we also think about Shenzhen, which is a special economic zone, it does have these important charter city aspects. It started as 320 square kilometers. It did have a lot of power devolved to it. And so learning from that, we think we can really create this replicable model that can help jumpstart and generate economic development. So Dubai became successful in part because it capitalized on the mistakes of its neighbors. For example, when Persia began taxing merchants at their ports, Dubai responded quickly and established itself as a free port. But this strategy seems somewhat risky. If charter cities all engage in regulatory arbitrage, won't this just lead to a race to the bottom? One, it depends on what this regulatory arbitrage is. If this regulatory arbitrage improves production, if it improves the productivity of people working there, then that's probably good. If we think, okay, is a charter city in Nigeria and a charter city in Zambia both going to create better labor law? Is that a race to the bottom or is that attracting more investment and creating more jobs? But there definitely is an important point there in that, right, okay, you can't always, the arbitrage that you're playing is trying to, there's a set number of traders and you attract them. You might have some increases in productivity, but that does limit the total potential output. So one example for this is tax havens. There's some tax havens in the world. You might be able to create a few more that might be able to attract a lot of investment, create some jobs, some wealth, but that isn't really necessarily a positive sum for the world. And so what we try to do here at the Charter Cities Institute is focus on what are the sort of governance aspects that are positive for the whole world? What are the sustainable development practices that can lead to these general outcomes that aren't just sort of chipping away at a fixed pie, but really enlarging the pie for everybody. Yeah. So at CCI, we often refer to Singapore, Hong Kong, Dubai, and Shenzhen as proto-charter cities. The quality of governance, of course, in each of these cities laid the foundation for tremendous economic growth. But a simpler explanation might just be that they're all underpots. What do you think? So I think that's important. There's been a trend, at least in part of the sort of charter cities space, competitive governance space, to think that governance is all that matters. So you can go in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and you can build a successful city and as long as you have good rules, everything will work out. And 
that's just not, I think, a really accurate understanding of how things really work. And so what we try to do is think about, okay, where are there population increases? Where is there urbanization happening? Where are these trade routes shifting to? There's a lot of trade, for example, like shifting around the Horn of Africa. So there's new ports being built out there. So building into these larger geopolitical trends, I think, is essential for charter cities, developers, and entrepreneurs to think about how these patterns are changing and to take advantage of them. So governance is key and it is important, but so is infrastructure. So is urban planning. So is site selection. And we try to really have, well, we focus primarily on governance because we think that there is a bit of an opportunity there and nobody else is talking about it. We're building out our capacity to really contribute to the conversation on site selection, on urban planning, on all of these other aspects that really make up the sort of holistic approach of what it means to build a new city. So does that suggest then, though, that a successful charter city couldn't be built, say, in a landlocked area? Oh, it definitely could be built in a landlocked area. So a successful charter city could not be built in, for example, like Antarctica. But in a landlocked area, sure, if we're looking at, for example, Rwanda, I've spoken with advisors to the government there who tell me, look, we don't need a charter city. If there is a good reform, we'll just pass it. And the population is under 10 million, so it can be modeled to a certain extent as a like large city, and they're being very successful. Ethiopia is also being very successful. They have quite successful industrial parks, which have charter city-esque elements. Switzerland is quite successful. So having access to trade routes is obviously important, but it is by no means necessary for economic development. So you used to have a habit of reading a book before each trip to a new country that was either about the country itself or by a native author. So can you tell me what some of your favorites were? Sure. So one of my favorites, uh, I did a little bit of consulting work in Kazakhstan just when grad school was finishing up. And the book is called The Day Lasts More Than 100 Years by, and I'm going to probably butcher the author's name, but Chinggis Atmatov. And it's fascinating because it was written during Soviet times. And so Kazakhstan has this unique history of their steppe people, so they're nomadic. It's a Muslim culture, and they're effectively conquered by the Soviet Union. And it was actually one of the worst genocides in sort of recent memory on par with Holomdor in terms of the percentage of the Kazakh population that was killed. And so the novel is quite interesting because it juxtaposes this sort of modern Soviet building power compared to this old nomadic practices and the people who are torn between the two worlds with this really interesting sort of sci-fi backdrop that never really fully made sense in the context of the story, but aliens were contacted. So it really had this, here's this far off future that's sort of being forcefully imposed combined with this longing for this old way of living that was sort of slowly dying out. It was really moving. Another book that I quite enjoyed, I think it's The Dance of the Jacarinda, which is about Kenya. And so it's about a British guy who basically is one of the colonizers, becomes governor, and is in some ways quite successful in this, comes to power in part by these just horrific acts of violence. And how sort of he fits into the Kenya story, how he's perceived by some people in Kenya and how these acts of violence are remembered much longer, even after Kenya has independence. And he seems himself as having really contributed to the sort of saying is most countries build railroads, but in Kenya, a railroad built the country. And he sees himself as contributing to this idea of Kenya, while there's sort of this echoes of these atrocities that he's committed that in the end come back to really haunt him. We'll leave those in the show notes then because people might be interested in reading those. So what would CCI do with, say, $100 million? And for anyone who's listening to this, you can, in fact, give us $100 million. It's tax deductible. (laughs) So I think what we would do with $100 million is probably go and build a city. And so the long-term goal is to 
initially when we started, what we were working towards was making Tartar City sustainable because we had seen Paul Romer get interested and then sort of stop talking about it publicly and a lot of momentum dying. And then there were a number of companies that went to Honduras without making progress and there being no momentum. So we wanted to bring together people who are interested in Tartar Cities and interested in these ideas and really get a sustainable conversation going that could be much more broad-based than a single person or a single country. And over the last few months, we've realized that this has been successful. And so we've begun to think about what are the next steps. And so we see ourselves as really building out all of these core areas that are necessary for charter cities. Currently, we're focusing on governance. Later this year, we'd like to focus a little bit more about the urban planning and the infrastructure. And so with the $100 million, what we do is really just ramp these levels up, start meeting with presidents, start identifying site selection, and really rolling up our sleeves and start hopefully moving dirt on some of these projects. That's awesome. Okay, so you often joke that you are descended from a distinguished line of bureaucrats. What has having parents in the federal bureaucracy taught you about governance? Well, hopefully they're not listening to this, though I think they've heard me make this joke before. So it was quite interesting. I grew up in Bethesda, and at one point in maybe middle school, I asked my parents if everybody becomes a lawyer when they grow up, (laughs) which is kind of interesting because neither my parents were lawyers, but all my friends' parents were. And I think what it sort of showed, part of it is I grew up in this sort of idyllic era of the high in the 90s of the post-Cold War, we could do anything, where there was this belief in this sort of technocratic bureaucracy that would be able to make things better. In the last few years, that sort of narrative and belief has been shattered. And so it's kind of interesting. I get into discussions with my dad quite frequently, my mom sometimes, but my dad a bit more frequently. And he still has a little bit of this belief in sort of technocratic solutions like, no, you can't do that. That's not in the statute or whatever. I'm just like, well, ultimately, it's about power and (laughs) that power structure is fundamentally changing. And this idea that you're going to follow a statute is embedded in all of these institutional norms that are kind of being dissolved around us as we speak. And so it's that sort of juxtaposition of, to a certain extent, coming from this old world with this old set of how things are done, but also seeing the rapid changes and I think understanding how to react and what might be next has given me a little bit of a unique vantage point in thinking about American governance and social sort of organization and order more broadly. So you're not just descended from a long line of bureaucrats, but also a long line of particularly Dutch bureaucrats. We in the office talk a lot about the Dutch contribution to global economic history, but particularly the fine contours of Dutch economic history. How does being Dutch, if you heavily identify as such, influence the way that you think about governance and the way that you think about building new cities? Sure. So I don't identify strongly as Dutch. I'm Dutch to the same extent that most Americans have a grandfather or grandparent from a country and then identify with that country because a sort of American history on some margins isn't that strong. I visited the Netherlands three times. And so it is sort of the strongest like non-American part of my culture that I identify with, but I don't speak a word of Dutch. If I went there, like I would be a consummate outsider. That being said, I do think that there are these cultural strains that do, I think, influence behavior. And so I sort of sometimes joke that people, at least for myself, if you think about the Dutch, they have this very tolerant, very cosmopolitan perspective. And a lot of my political beliefs are to a certain extent these extended rationalizations of the sort of beliefs that the Dutch people have built up over centuries. And then just also just a plug for why the Dutch are great and underappreciated. Tammy's rolling her eyes right now is that (laughs) They created the modern world. They basically created the Joint Stock Corporation. 
They sort of created what's turned into modern international trade. They conquered the English, which led to the Glorious Revolution, which is sort of typically identified as one of the turning points that created the that sort of set the institutional stage for the Industrial Revolution. The English don't like to admit that they were invaded by the Dutch because William of Orange was third in line for the throne, but he took an army, landed on their shores, and marched in and declared himself king. So yes, unfortunately, English, like the Normans, weren't the last time you were beaten on your home soil, but we'll still be friends because now you, I guess, have subsequently had a slightly higher I guess we have to hope none of our British friends listen to this podcast. Yes. (laughs) Well... Industrial policy is having a moment. So Danny Radrick is one among many who long argued that industrial policy is key to development. Should charter cities then pursue an industrial policy? Generally, yes. I think if we just think about first, I think it's useful to define industrial policy. And so we can think of industrial policy as the government taking specific actions to make it more attractive for certain businesses and certain types of industries to locate there. And if we think about a broad set of industries, some have positive spillover effects and some have negative spillover effects. So, for example, resource extraction. Resource extraction is useful. It does produce value. This microphone, these are minerals that were mined from the ground. There tend to be very limited positive spillover effects. So there's a lot of resource extraction occurring in Africa where, okay, somebody like a Canadian mining conglomerate comes in, sets up a mine, mines the resources, ships it to the U.S. or somewhere to Canada to be processed, and then it goes in our phones and in our laptops and makes our lives better. But the spillover effects from the African perspective with resource extraction often tend to be quite limited. So there are more taxes and there are these benefits, but it rarely transforms or it has this broad-based social transformation that leads to economic development. Versus if we look at something like manufacturing, that tends to create knowledge and is able to scale in a way that resource extraction often is unable to scale. And so if you're thinking about a charter city, it's important to think about one, okay, what industries are possible in a given area? What is being produced? What processing might take place? What talent exists? And so you need to think about that. But you also need to think about what are these positive spillovers? You don't want to build a charter city and do textile manufacturing. Then 30 years later, everybody's still working for very low wages in textile manufacturing. That's great on a stage and ladder of development, but that ultimately is only one of the early rungs. And so thinking about how to do that and how to stage what industries to target, what have these knowledge spillovers, these linkages that can generate the this transformational economic development, I think, is quite important. Your life's mission is to see the creation of new, well-governed cities that catalyze economic growth. That feels fair, right? Yep. You know, there is already a country that exists that is pretty good at building new high-state capacity cities, and that's China. So if you're interested in seeing new cities being built all over the world that are high-state capacity that catalyze growth, why not just hope that China's Belt and Road Initiatives, which already has global partners, all over the world is successful. I think we should hope it's successful. I think, right, China has is one of the greatest humanitarian miracles over the last, since the post-war era. They've lifted about 800 million people out of poverty in a strategy of special economic zones combined with urbanization, which is very analogous to how we think about charter cities. That being said, while they've been quite successful on the economic development front, they've been a little bit less successful in the human rights front. I mean, it's bad to throw millions of religious minorities into concentration camps. It's bad to harvest the organs of religious minorities. Freedom of speech is good. And so I think there's a question of one, development, and two, sort of values more broadly and how to think about human flourishing. And then on a slightly more particular level, while I do hope that the Belt and Road Initiative is successful just in terms of bringing economic transformation to impoverished areas, I'm perhaps a little bit skeptical. And so 
the reason is I'm not necessarily sure it's financially sustainable. Basically, because if you look at sort of slightly more detailed understanding of the structure of how one Belt and Road Initiative is not some top-down effort. China was doing a lot of these investments before. And what it was is, to a certain extent, an ex-post rationalization of an existing set of broad strategies engaged by Chinese firms, both state-owned and private. Second, if you think of China's basically at extremely low credit, and they've been able to undertake some of these massive infrastructure investments in China, betting that there would be the demand for them in several years. Most of the ghost cities are filled because there was such rapid economic growth. But now in most of the areas that they're investing in, there is not the same degree of economic growth. And so the financial stability of many of these projects is probably not as high as would initially be believed. So one way to interpret it is they're basically subsidizing infrastructure investments for Africa, for Asia, for parts of Latin America, which is probably net good, but not sustainable. And the third reason that I think charter cities are an important sort of complement to this is to go back to the previous point of uh, bringing American values, but two, this just governance broadly. Most of the Belt and Road projects are very infrastructure focused, and some of them are on special economic zones, really having this broad-based reforms that can have explicit targets of integrating local populations, of having, of training people, of moving up the value chain is something that I haven't seen in any particular Belt and Road project, and I think is really an important contribution to how we think about development. So Honduras was supposed to be the test case for charter cities. It was the first and is still currently the only country with charter cities legislation on the books. You lived there for six months to be closer to the action at the time. So what do you think went wrong there? So I think there was a few things that happened. Just a quick recap. So they invited Paul Romer in, I believe, 2010 or 2011. He met with the president. They passed the legislation. Then they signed a memorandum of understanding with a private group. And Paul Romer left. He posted, sent something to Tyler Cowen, who posted on Marginal Revolution. Only a week or two after that, the Honduran Supreme Court ruled the law unconstitutional. About a year later, maybe nine months later, they passed similar legislation that was ruled constitutional by the Supreme Court. And there's been a handful of groups that have been down engaged in projects since. And I think what happened is sort of several fold is one, it was coming out of a basically a post coup environment. So there was a lot of political will to get it done. But they didn't set up the right institutional structures. And this is one of the tricks with charter cities is that they have the most promise in areas that need these institutional reforms. But if they could have these institutional reforms, then they would already have implemented them. So there were governance challenges on the government side in terms of like, how do you actually get approval setting up the committee that does that, that were slowed down because of some internal conflicts and disagreements. And then on the developer side, I think there were also challenges because after Paul Romer left, there were a few groups that were interested, but just did not have the necessary experience experience in terms of building new cities, in terms of creating legal systems from scratch. And so while there was this level of excitement, there wasn't this level of expertise and this knowledge about what it means to meaningfully execute. And so with the sort of government dysfunction combined with the lack of capacity on the private side to execute, I think that really slowed it down. And what we're trying to do is really build some of that at least private sector capacity to execute. So when these opportunities do arise, we can make sure that they're taken advantage of. Yeah. So, Mark, you spend enough time in Africa now that you can answer this question with some certainty. Which African country has the best food? And of course, I'm asking not as a Nigerian, although remember, I'm from Nigeria, so that's a potential answer, but as an interested party. But again, I'm from Nigeria. Zambian food. (laughs) First, I'll address the elephant in the room. Nigerian food is too hot. I don't understand it. You take things, you cook them well, and then you throw a lot of pepper on them till you can barely eat them. He's referring to, of course, the famous pepper soup. It's literally pepper 
in soup. Or pepper chicken. (laughs) Half of your food, such as pepper. What I think is funny is that you often like to brag that you're not like other people who grew up in Bethesda, Maryland. You guys can infer whatever you want from that. That you like spice. And then when you get spicy food, so I'm just confused. What is the truth? So Zambian food is great. We went to a local Zambian restaurant when we were there. Well, our host really likes steakhouses, but once we twisted his arm and we went to a local Zambian restaurant. What's the flavor profile? Very spicy, a little bit hot, but generally very flavorful. So it's interesting. They use a lot of a lot of things that we don't really necessarily use in our cooking. For example, they use a lot of pumpkin yeah. all year round as opposed to just saving that for fall or something. I did like that. It was good. And then I also tend to be a fan of Ethiopian food. It was quite interesting eating in Ethiopia after eating lots of Ethiopian food in the D.C. area. Is it which different? Has, the meat quality is lower in Ethiopia, but the flavors are a little bit higher. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> well, I'll remember that the next time I'm over there. So just back to charter cities. How exactly do you build a government from scratch? So who's going to staff the administrative body or bodies of a charter city? And what are some semi-recent examples of new institutions being built from scratch? Sure. So this is something that we've been increasingly thinking about as sort of some of our projects are getting traction and moving. So if you think, okay, there's a city with 1 million people, maybe 5% of that city is the administration. So that's 5,000 people. And of that 5,000, maybe 10% of those are like high skilled. You have people cleaning the streets who don't necessarily need a high level of education, but you do want a very sort of talented, effective bureaucracy. And how do you identify, train, develop that bureaucracy that can really effectively do that? If we look at recent examples of very successful sort of development projects, places like Japan after World War II, places like Korea. One of the really striking stories is this really effective bureaucracy that was developed. That was where all the really smart kids go. They didn't go into tech. They didn't go into finance. They didn't go into management consulting. They went into usually like the Ministry of Industry or something like that. And so one of the things we're thinking about is, okay, how do we create this like analogous thing? How is this charter city attract the best and the brightest? There's probably a small number of expats, if we assume it's Nigeria, who sort of maybe lived a little bit in Nigeria, maybe a little bit in sort of the U.S. or Europe, went to school in the U.S. that might be attracted back. Then you can also go to Nigerian universities. Unfortunately, Nigerian universities are generally not a very high quality. More foreign students go to university in the Democratic Republic of Congo than they do in Nigeria. So you can go to that talent pool, but that is probably not as deep as would be ideal. You can go to sort of existing Nigerian governments, but they've already been inoculated, sort of inculcated in this bureaucracy that isn't exactly as effective as it could be. So there's a risk of bringing this sort of stagnant bureaucratic culture to what you really want to be, this new dynamic city. And so I think what's going to end up happening is you're basically going to have to set up training mechanisms for this generation of administrators to really get them the skills that they need. And the internal discussions in the office have largely been, this is sort of a three, maybe four-year project, is to actually create a university, a sort of a master's program that just like a year and a half online only that can really start training this generation of people because if you think you need 500 people like that's not trivial and that's only one city and so once you multiply this by a number of cities and getting really this talent pool that just doesn't exist in the world today you need to start thinking about creating the pipelines that allow to do it that allow you to be successful okay i'm going to throw out a few names and you can tell me if they would have been good charter city founders napoleon Ooh, great at founding bad at running So Napoleon is fascinating. I'm going to fanboy for a little bit here because (laughs) he's he's sort of he's kind of like a tech founder in that he's 
pretty socially awkward, but a genius and would just go and ask, like when he went to his first being a general, he was in Italy. He went, he just started asking like really stupid questions that betrayed a complete lack of understanding. And so the officer who was reporting to him was answering these questions and was like, they sent me an idiot. He doesn't know anything. And then after like five hours, the guy who was Napoleon was basically interviewing was just like, oh, wait, in five hours, Napoleon has now learned more about Italy than anybody else I've spoken to over the last year. And so he was really adept at quickly getting information. Second, he's a product of the Enlightenment and sort of this product Enlightenment because he becomes an emperor, but really about the Enlightenment, about like his primary support base was sort of the petite bourgeoisie. So he's quite interested in new ideas, in creating university centers of knowledge and breaking down these old hierarchical structures. And so there's this great thing. He goes to Malta. He stays in Malta for a week. He conquers it. In that week, he destroys the feudal system. He sets up universities that still exist today. He creates a newspaper. He implements all of these great reforms. So he's quite good at this sort of institution building stage. But then if you look at later in his career, he doesn't really understand economics. And so he's relatively anti-free trade. He starts imposing price controls. And part of this is dictated as sort of a necessity of war, a necessity of keeping your political base happy. But part of it is also this just general understanding of these, I think, broader economic trends and how they fit in. So while he's sort of very good at this institutional building phase, making sure you get the policies right is quite important. And I'm not sure I would per se trust him to get the policies right. Booker T. Washington. So I think he would build a great charter city. If we look at what his life entailed, it was charter city-esque on some margins. So what he did was he sort of realized he was living at turn of the century U.S. and basically still apartheid South, where African-Americans were routinely subject to sort of brutal suppression and horrors. And he said, OK, well, how do we make lives better? Let's just do it ourselves. So what he did was he founded the Tuskegee Institute, which is still in operation today it, and really served as a fountain for African-American intellectualism in the first half of the 20th century. What happened was when he founded it, the first generation of students built the school themselves. They raised the buildings. And after they did that, they went home to their communities and really took what they learned and what they brought to how to create these models for society, how to generate economic development that were successful in terms of really having these positive second order effects. And so I see that as a really key, how do you get the initial economy started? And Ugerti definitely showed how it would be possible. Catherine the Great. Before talking about Catherine the Great, I think she would probably be a great Charter Cities founder. But before talking about her, her predecessor, Peter the Great, was effectively, I'm not sure it's a Charter City per se, but at least a new city founder that he did in St. Petersburg. And he sort of realized, okay, Russia is falling behind Europe. Let's go and let's figure out how we can make Russia better, how we can make these things work. He goes and spends a number of years shipbuilding in the Netherlands. And it must have been quite a sight because he was like 6667. And so you've got a 6667 Russian guy in basically medieval Amsterdam learning how to build ships. But it was a relatively cosmopolitan society at that time. So he goes, he takes those lessons and decides, OK, Russia needs to be more European facing. So he says, OK, we're going to build a new city here, moves the nobility there and, and really sets this up. And so Catherine the Great basically organizes what's effectively a coup over her husband and takes power. And one, this is like kind of impressive. This is sort of a old society. There's a lot of built in sexism. And she is able to sort of concentrate and wield authority in a manner that allows her to be a very well-known, successful female ruler in that time. And then second, she continues Peter the Great's policies of 
sort of opening up to the West. She does found a number of towns and villages and really continues this broad urbanization, broad set of reforms that I think do sort of translate well into thinking about charter cities and founding them. My personal favorite, Walt Disney. Answer carefully. Bad. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's been great working with you, and I hope you have a great day. So let me explain. He tried to found a charter city, and it was a bad city. I want to correct the historical record here. Walt died three months after unveiling the plans for Epcot. So I think it's premature to say Walt would have been a bad charter city founder. But maybe I'm just saying that because Disney World, of course, has the U.S.'s ninth largest transit system by ridership because it is truly the happiest place on earth because the architecture is more inspiring than anything that was built in dc in the same time period but again this is your interview so you tell us disney world is fantastic but disney world is an amusement park and disney world is in some ways has a lot of similarities with charter cities so one he went out he created a bunch of shell companies to buy all the land he got reforms passed at the florida level that basically created a single water district a single environmental district some licensing and regulations are removed for disney world things like fire regulations and surprisingly they have not really had a lot of people die in a fire because if they did they would lose a lot of money so it does show this mechanism of devolving authority and market mechanisms being reasonably effective. But he also created uh, Celebration Florida, which was supposed to be this community of the future. But and maybe it was in part because he wasn't able to implement his vision, but it effectively just turned into a above average suburb. And so maybe it's a nice place to live, but there weren't really these deep governance reforms in the community. It wasn't the showcase of, and maybe he just got the timing wrong, but the showcase of envisioning the future didn't really pan out. Maybe it was the execution because he wasn't alive to really see it through. But there was an example of him founding something that at least, and maybe it's just I'm picking a fight because it's fun, that didn't become as successful as, for example, St. Petersburg. Moving on. What are the current binding constraints for charter cities, and how is this likely to change over the next decade? So there's several current constraints. I would say the number one current constraint is politics. It's getting political buy-in to make these deep types of reforms that are necessary for charter cities. And so we're currently working in conversations with a number of projects, and that's something that often comes up. Some of the more advanced projects, there's other constraints. One of them is funding. These are new projects that don't really fit in any typical basket. And so we've started thinking about potentially doing early stage funding for like the master planning land acquisition via Silicon Valley venture capital. But the challenge is a lot of these projects are in Africa and they're real estate related. So it doesn't exactly fit the venture capital model. For longer term investment, there are sort of African development banks, they do more traditional infrastructure. And these are a little bit more real estate, but also a little bit more city-like. And so thinking about charter cities, not just as these large real estate projects, but as cities that do continuously generate revenue. So financing is another challenge. A third challenge is talent. And this is talent both on the entrepreneurial level, people who can build the cities themselves. And recently, over the last six months, we've seen a decent increase in this talent, but it's still lacking to some extent. And then also just the talent for city administration. How do you hire the right people? How do you think about governance? How do you create labor law and administer it? And there aren't really consultants who can do this. You can hire McKinsey, pay them a lot of money, but they don't really know what they're doing. And you have to, and there's sort of a little bit of a principal agent problem in terms of giving really effective oversight. So those capacities need to be developed. 
developed and they're not really being developed right now. And so we're trying to tackle that talent margin on some level in terms of education and in terms of setting up some processes to identify people who might be effective administrators. The U.S. is generally well-governed, but you've repeatedly noted that U.S. institutions are in decline. And this constrains innovation. So isn't there a case to be made for charter cities in the U.S.? No, we should do charter cities in Canada instead. (laughs) Okay, explain that one. (laughs) And I will only note here that Google did, of course, I guess Alphabet tried to do this with Sidewalk Labs. And we know how that story went. So why Canada? Yeah, so it's sort of half facetiously, but... One, if you look at U.S. just population trends, building charter cities are very capital intensive. And so U.S. population is growing relatively slowly. And so there's a few areas where there are sufficient regulatory constraints that might make sense. So, for example, Y Combinator looked at doing a city outside of San Francisco. Scott Alexander has also blogged about this, where just because the housing constraints are so high, it might make sense to do something new. I know of several projects that are looking in more sort of rural areas to to develop things, but I'm generally a little bit skeptical of the demographics. Like you could create a community for 50,000, 100,000 people, but ultimately you're not really going to build a new city from scratch. And even 100,000 person new communities are kind of pushing it. Second, just in terms of some institutions are in decline, but it's quite difficult, I think, to get the level of political buy-in to devolve the type of authority. That might change over the next 10 years if there are some real big shocks. But right now, going to ask Trump or whoever the Democratic nominee and maybe president is and say, hey, devolve labor law and tax administration to a city level for this new system isn't going to work. So I say Canada because I think one of the things to think about in city construction is how are trade routes going to change? And if we think about global warming, what's going to happen is Siberia and the Canadian tundra are going to open up. And this is going to mean two things. One, more resource extraction. There's a lot of minerals that are hidden there that the price point for extraction will become feasible once the temperature is a little bit less. Second is agriculture. There's a lot of fields that could become productive in terms of grain, in terms of other types of agriculture. So this will allow this changing trade route. Second is that Canada does have a sort of healthier demographic demographics in the U.S. Their immigration is better. Their birth rate, I think, is a little bit better. So they're actually adding population to the extent when it could fill up a medium-sized city. Third, Canada does have, I think, a tradition with America like federalism. And in some margins, is a little bit stronger than federalism because, for example, of Quebec speaking a different language that could be integrated into helping to develop a charter city in Canada. Explain your decision to found the Charter Cities Institute, then Center for Innovative Governance Research, as opposed to just joining an institute that was working on similar issues. There weren't really any institutes working on similar issues and nobody would hire me. (laughs) (laughs) But the non-pithy answer. (laughs) There was a tweet going around, I forget who, but like five or six months ago that was some founders found it because they have a great idea and other people found it because they need to prove to themselves that they can actually do it. And I fall in the latter category to a certain extent. And so there were some discussions happening, but I felt them lacking a bit. I would go to conferences and the same five people would be talking about the same two projects over five years. And I realized first I wrote a handful of papers trying to address this saying like, hey, this conversation can be more broad. Then I realized that the papers just aren't enough. If you really want to change something, you have to do it yourself. So it was sort of that combined with just realizing that this is a very interesting space that none of the jobs that were presenting themselves to me would have made me happy. And the fact that most existing institutions just don't 
still don't get what charter cities are. And so while the conversation has progressed going to places like Brookings, it's still too out there to really effectively engage them. And having a independent institute, I think, has allowed us to change the conversation in a much more forceful manner than me being at some random think tank would. So which of CCI's accomplishments are you the most proud of? I think what I would say is first, basically, and I brought this up a little bit earlier, but over the last two years, I think what we've effectively done is at least change the conversation in some still relatively narrow quarters, but really focus, one, on emerging markets, two, on a more incremental approach to governance reforms and working with governments. And three, what we've done, I think, is help bring in folks who are interested in charter cities who are thinking about them into some of these conversations. So in Zambia with Muya Musokotwanu, he's building Nkwashi, working with them to help understand like what governance reforms might be valuable for Nkwashi and helping to implement them. Where the winner of the Charter Cities Business Plan Contest in Yimba Economic City, they were interested in governance reforms. And now we've been working relatively closely with figuring out how to actually implement these to make this a very successful project. And so I still see ourselves very much as in the early days and I'm proud of how we've sort of changed the conversation and planted some of these seeds and have these ongoing conversations. But I think the really big wins are going to come over the next year or the next two or three years once we start seeing some of the projects that we're working with begin to bear fruit, begin to actually create these new administrative structures, start really moving dirt and attracting investment. And that's what I'm most looking forward to. So, of course, you and I go back a little farther than me coming to work at the Institute. And when we first ran into each other at that Students for Liberty conference a year and a half ago, again, after some years of not seeing each other, I remember you telling me about this institute that you were planning on building. And it was going to be charter cities, but also kind of pushing the technological frontier in the U.S. And then some months later, you all of a sudden had a partner charter city and the money to hire me. And that really largely became possible because of two key relationships. One with Muya Musokotwane, who, of course, is the CEO of Tebe Investment Management, which is building Nkwashi, and also Tyler Cowan, who gave you that first EV grant. So can you tell me a little bit about those key relationships and kind of how those decisions came into fruition? So a note of clarification, I, in fact, did not have enough money to hire you. (laughs) 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 That was lucky to come in soon. But when I think, what, your third week on the job, we went to Zambia And I remember not having enough money in the bank to make payroll on the way back and hoping that the checks were in the mail. You know, this is not funny, but it is kind of incredible in hindsight. I mean, it's a little funny. It's kind of funny. So Tyler, he was on my dissertation committee. I actually never took a class with him, which is one of my regrets in graduate school. And so when I started, I was emailing him asking for advice and he was like, yeah, this probably isn't going to work. So I was like, okay, yes, sure, whatever. Everybody tells me that. I'm going to do it anyway. And then sort of a year later, I mean, he helps get me a few introductions in Silicon Valley, which get me a few donations. And I'm like, okay, so he's skeptical, but willing to step out. And he then tells me about what becomes Emergent Ventures, this grant thing. And he basically tells me, like, just write me a proposal. Just send it directly to me. Don't do the application process. So I send it to him and he gives me a, a grant as one of the first winners. And I think He still told me, like, this is probably not going to work. And it was actually quite satisfying. Two months ago or so, I had a dinner with him and Muya Musokotwana as well and was chatting with Tyler. And he was like, "Okay, yeah, I think this is very interesting. But, Mark, not all of your projects are going to work. And I was like, hey, this is an improvement. It went from 
this is probably not going to work. Too. Not all of your projects are going to work. So it was quite satisfying to see that. And I think his approach of a little bit more like, I don't know what to call it, venture style philanthropy to bet on these sort of high impact, but early stage, high risk projects, as well as the sort of degree of mentorship has been quite supportive. And so Muya Musukutwane, who's building in Kwashe, he reached out to me almost three years ago now. He sent me a message on Facebook and he was like, hey, I am a Zambian prince and I'm building a city in Zambia. And I was like, huh, what is this? So I he didn't actually say he was a Zambian prince. I'm joking. But thank you for explaining the joke. You're welcome. I had been reached out to by several new city projects at that point. So it wasn't a complete surprise. But most of the projects, a lot of them were basically not real. People had these crazy ideas, but his seemed quite real. So at the time I was working for a different firm, we set up a call with him, tried to set up a consulting relationship, but it didn't really pan out. But I was like, oh, this is super cool. Like this guy is building a new city. So when I started the institute, I got back in touch with him. I asked him to be on the sort of board of advisors, started talking about Charter Cities. He's he's come to speak at a number of our events. He came to our first event in San Francisco a year ago, October. He's flying from Zambia and we didn't even offer to comp his ticket. I was like, okay, do you want to improve governance? And he was like, yeah, but I don't really know how. And I was like, okay, we can help. And since then, it's become great because I think we sort of see eye to eye on a lot of issues. And he does have this really big, expansive vision and is sort of executing very competently, which I think has just these sort of really good operators have been lacking in this space. And seeing that and getting the first project that we could work with and get some early wins was, I think, quite beneficial to the potential for the Institute. Yeah, it's incredible to see Nkwashi's progress just from when we first saw it in December of 2018 to to now. And it's incredible that people are moving in there. And so, William, if you're listening to this, we can't wait to see how it keeps growing. Okay, so I've asked you a lot of questions about charter cities, but I kind of want to just pivot, as they say, and just ask you a couple of random questions. We'll come back to charter cities just at the very end. So I'm looking at, we just talked about industrial policy, and I'm looking at the U.S., I think okay, we have huge farm subsidies. We can't get rid of the Jones Act. We subsidize people living in floodplains. So if we can't solve such obvious infrastructure challenges, why should we trust the state with industrial policy? We shouldn't. So I think industrial policy can be good, but you need to think about this with public choice concerns, such as special interest groups tend to have heavy influence on decision making. And it, right with a sort of later stage economy like the US, I think Mansur Olson's rise and decline of nations where sort of everything gets jammed up because all the rents are being eaten up and there's not much freedom of movement. And if you look at the very successful instances of industrial policy, largely in East Asia, what was happening was extremely rapid growth with extremely close collaboration between government and industries with government effectively having the upper hand and being able to force fire executives force industries to change if they so desired. And right now, the political institutions in the U.S. do not allow this. So for me, while I think industrial policy is still potentially good for the U.S., I would frame it more in terms of state capacity. Before embarking on, okay, these are the specific actions that the government should take, I would think about, okay, what institutional capacity do we need to be able to undertake these actions? And for a more specific analogy, 
we can think about, okay, let's go to the moon in five years, man back on the moon. Okay, that's a good goal, but is NASA today capable of doing that? And so before thinking about like, let's set this goal and let's do it, I would think about let's actually build out the institutional capacity and see what has gone wrong with why NASA is unable to accomplish some of these things. And I think that framing is useful for the broader sort of political discussion generally. What does Silicon Valley not understand? Politics. <laughs> Fair enough. I think this is useful to discuss a little bit more. One of my friends has this saying where Silicon Valley likes to think they're above politics, but in fact, they're below it. And I think over the last few years, we've seen a very rapid learning curve where they have sort of realized, okay, they see Zuckerberg go present to Congress and they get a little bit worried that congressmen are asking, like, can you please fix my iPhone? And so I'm hoping that this knowledge continues to sort of coalesce because what we're seeing is the existing elites I think are largely out of touch and don't have feedback loops. So after the Iraq war, all the major supporters got promotions. And I think Silicon Valley is good at building and that can on some margins be translated to institution building. And so I sort of hope that they can think about and become more serious about that while realizing that political problems are not engineering problems and need a different approach and a different way of thinking about it. What's the best book you've ever read that's not related to charter cities? So recently, one of the very good books I read was the Napoleon biography, which was fantastic. I think that's probably the best biography I've read. Also looking at the bookshelf, The Three-Body Problem, which is fantastic. And then maybe an underrated book that not many people have heard of is The Art of Community, which is by Spencer McCollum. So I want to go back to The Three-Body Problem. So how does Chinese art and literature reflect their conception of the world? And not just art and literature, but really art, literature, movies, Chinese culture broadly. Sure. So I think art is reflective of the sort of people who are creating it. And oftentimes, I think with China, if we think about what their circumstances are, over the last 40 years, they've basically seen tremendous material progress. So for example, one of my buddies um, from sort of a summer camp growing up, he married a woman from rural China. And it was really fascinating because we were back at this sort of beach and going sailing on a pretty windy day. And she's like, oh, I want to go sailing. And can you swim? No, but I want to go sailing. And there's this just like basic optimism where I think most Americans like, okay, you're 20 something. You don't know how to swim. You want to go out on a pretty rough day, but you just believe that's possible. And I think that has been built into Chinese art broadly, right? If we think about the three-body problem, these are these big civilizational type questions. What is it? I think it's called Starship Earth, where they like turn the Earth into a, a spaceship by building a bunch of giant engines on it because the sun is blowing up. They need to go to another solar system. So really thinking about these giant engineering problems, which they've really successfully seen their society tackle. The US, for example, I think has just not seen that, where most of our science fiction is what if computers got much more computery, just getting really in this techno-dystopian thing where there isn't really material progress. There's just the expansion of electronics into every sphere of our life, which feeds into a little bit of this cultural complacency and unwillingness to push frontiers. Which historical era is most analogous to this one? So I think there's a lot to learn from different eras of history. So one of my favorite podcasts is Revolutions with Mike Duncan. And it's quite interesting because he goes through all these revolutions. For example, the French Revolution, the Haitian Revolution, the American Revolution, the revolutions of 1848. 
But within all of these different revolutions, you really see this era of social change, where basically what you have is the emergence of the petite bourgeoisie, which because they're becoming more productive, because they're sort of gaining wealth, you see all of these old social institutions break down on different margins, sometimes sort of quietly and sometimes very violently. And I think what we're seeing now is this change in the sort of factors of production that is leading to this change in social organization. Another era that I think is somewhat maybe overplayed, but I still think is quite important, is looking at Rome as it transitioned from the Roman Republic to the Roman Empire. And the U.S., for example, I think if we think moving forward 100 years, what is the relationship between Congress and the presidential branch? I think I expect Congress basically to become vestigial organs where power is increasingly concentrated in the presidency and defected via administrative order. And we're already sort of seeing reflections of that and understanding this process of social change. I do think there are some important parallels that can be drawn from Rome. You often think about the history of city-states and specifically the Hanseatic League, probably the greatest network of city-states that ever existed. But if we kind of look at what happened with the Hanseatic League, the Hanseatic League lost out to nation-states. So why should it be a model for governance today? So first, I guess a little bit more explanation on what the Hanseatic League is. It was founded in sort of the 12th century in the Baltic region by a bunch of German traders. And what happened was one of the first that they founded was, is called Lübeck. And they developed this body of law called Lübeck Law. And then sort of people related to those traders went and found a number of other cities that were often used a similar legal system. So on some margins, it is a model for how the creation of a legal system with this sort of urbanization process can lead to successful commerce and trade. And the Hanseatic League is quite interesting because it's an example of a non-contiguous, basically political unit. It was never really like a formal political unit, but they did fight wars. They fought two wars with the Danish government to force Dane to basically open their markets to trading and goods. And so they were able to raise armies, they were able to fight, they were able to coordinate somewhat effectively. And so I think it is a useful model in eras of rapid urbanization to think about how to create these new political units that allow for more commerce and trade. Over the long term, um, I think there obviously are some challenges, but if we think about, like, I see charter cities not as a end goal in terms of this is a good political outcome, but as a means to achieve economic outcomes. So charter cities are good because they allow for human flourishing, because they allow for investment, job creation, economic development. They are not good because a city-state is the optimal social unit. And so if they are able to achieve those values in terms of advancing economic development and then they transition into sort of different forms of governance, I don't see that as necessarily a bad outcome. What does Harry and Meghan leaving the monarchy have to do with state capacity? I'm dying to know. <laughs> this question might be dated by the time we... But I still want to know the answer. Sure. So I think it's indicative of sort of broad declines in state capacity that are happening because what they're going for is all of the benefits of basically nobility, having a lifestyle brand, getting invited to all the fun parties with none of the associated responsibilities. So instead of actually keeping up these old institutions, these old traditions, they just want to not have to fulfill the set of obligations. And this is part of the challenge. If we think about citizenship as it emerged, which can sort of be a broader analogy for institutions and institutional development, during the feudal era, there wasn't citizenship. Lords fought battles, but the people didn't really care. And what happened was the modern merchant class started gaining political power 
And with that power, they developed these new ideas of citizenship, which really sort of came to the first like modern incarnation in the Netherlands, where being a citizen meant you had certain rights, but also certain responsibilities. And it was generally universal. And so thinking about as this has developed, we still expect the benefits from the citizenship, but have lost a sense of these obligations, which have started to strain at some of the social structures. And Harry and Meghan leaving the monarchy is on some margin an indication of this larger set of responsibility to these institutions that I think are crucial to maintaining a larger social order that need to be thought about very critically as we sort of transition into a new era and a lot of these institutions are decaying and need to be rebuilt or reconstructed. I've just got two questions to wrap up. So first, how is your thinking about how to establish charter cities evolved since CCI started working on the ground? Yeah, so I think it's evolved a lot. Initially, I thought it would be easier to start conversations as a nonprofit. That was pretty wrong. It's not easier. It's, I think, harder. Talking with government officials, sometimes they're a little bit suspicious, like, you're a nonprofit. What do you want? (laughs) And then also, for example, I thought the international development community would be, I thought once we were able to show them some progress and some, here, people are building new cities. And there's just been very little engagement. So I've been a little bit frustrated with that. I've been a little bit pleasantly surprised by the actual amount of engagement that we've gotten on the ground. I thought the first few years would be much more about building up expertise and knowledge. But in fact, it's been much more heavily focused on traction than I expected, which is quite a good thing. But the general level of excitement that I expected to be able to generate in the national development community and this sort of media more broadly has come much slower than I thought. And finally, how can listeners of this podcast get involved with Charter Cities? One, you can subscribe to this podcast, the Charter Cities podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, cci.city. We're on Facebook, Charter Cities Institute. Feel free to shoot me an email. I'm generally willing to respond to questions. What's your email? Mark at cci.city. Being part of the conversation and figuring out exactly where your skill sets fit and what skill sets might be necessary to build to fit better. We're really invested in building this community as a whole and so would love to help you get more involved. Thank you so much for listening. You can also subscribe to our newsletter and that link is on our Twitter. So cci.city. We're on Facebook at the Charter Cities Institute. We're on LinkedIn as well. We are allegedly on Instagram. Thanks so much for listening. And Mark, thanks for being here. Thank you for listening to the Charter Cities podcast. For more information about this episode and our guest, to subscribe to the show or to connect with the Charter Cities Institute, please visit chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, and thank you for listening to the Charter Cities podcast.